coming up on this episode. People with high blood pressure or cholesterol, the first thing that the doctor says is, you need to improve your diet and exercise. But they don't say what to do. Excessive protein can affect your kidneys, can affect your gut health, your microbiome. 70% of, of our serotonin, which is the hormone of happiness, it's produced in our gut and not in our brain. I didn't know that. Yes. 70% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Yeah. When you hear like, I don't know, Coca-Cola zero, you say, ah, it's zero, so it does, it's not going to make me fat, or it's going to make me leaner. But in the end, it seems that it's doing the, the opposite. exact opposite thing because it affects the microbiome. Calories are not all the same. Uh, there's a big difference uh, in how the calories are processed, depending on the fiber, micronutrients, like vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients. Hi, and welcome to the Med Conceptions Podcast, a podcast about living a healthy and more mindful life. Today I have with me Agustinos Mesaritis, who is a nutritional therapist and naturopath with a double Bachelor of Science and MSE in Nutritional Therapy with a distinction from the University of Worcester. He owns his own clinical practice in Nicosia, Cyprus. Thank you so much for being with us today, Agustinos. How My are pleasure. you? My pleasure. I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> It's it's a true pleasure to have you today and hopefully we can we can create some good content that's going to help some people. Yeah, of course. So, I wanted to start firstly with how comes you chose nutritional therapy? Um well, I I decided first that I wanted to get into more um, complementary approaches uh, like naturopathy, uh, but it was a very good thing that I managed to discover nutritional therapy in the UK, which is a new field of uh, complementary medicine. Um, so I found this in uh, that it was kind of growing a lot through BANT, the British, British Association for Lifestyle uh, Medicine. And I decided that I wanted to pursue that because it's science-based, basically. So it's more based on the science, on the evidence that we have, and it's not just uh, empirical. Did you have any personal experiences before? Yes, actually, I I had leukemia when I was younger, like around 12 years old. Um, at the time, we were doing chemo, as most cancer patients do, but I wasn't responding to treatment. So we kind of pursued alternative uh, medicine to find some way to kind of help the treatment. So I kept the chemotherapy regime, but at the same time, uh, utilized an alternative approach, which uh, included both uh, diet changes and uh, specific supplements. Um, at the time, it seemed like the best choice that we made because I started responding to treatment. I didn't have any side effects. Uh, I think the only side effect that I had was my hair falling out. Um, and I remember uh, specifically the doctor being like really, really impressed and saying, I, I really don't know <laughs> how you do that. <laughs> how, uh, how are you so well? Uh, so I believe that, yeah, it, it created that motivation in myself that I wanted kind of to uh, give that help further on to other people and also uh, even support uh, therapeutic uh, regime from a conventional uh, medical doctor uh, but at the same time we can see the, um, we could see the effect of diet uh, into a, um, uh, a standardized uh, mm -hmm. medical protocol I think what you mentioned is very important the fact that it was in conjunction with the current medical treatment so you didn't stop uh, the chemo but you did in conjunction and that actually helped it even 
uh, even improve the outcomes. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We know uh, even in um, in recent uh, publications, we can see that they are starting to accompany either specific foods or specific supplements with um, with a conventional therapeutic protocol like chemo. As we are on the on that subject, so we can see that it kind of acts uh, synergistically, and we can see that um, uh, the outcomes are much more favorable for the play for, for the patient, sorry, and uh, for the case progno- for their prognosis. I think you're 100 uh, percent right in saying that. And one of the key things that we have uh, that is underdeveloped in the medical curriculum, which this is what I'm currently doing now, is nutrition. We are not taught enough about nutrition in the medical curriculum, and I think we can learn a lot of we can learn a lot from nutritional therapists. Um, I agree with this, and I think that uh, because my first degree, my first bachelor of science degree, was biology, I, I found out that as Western scientists, let's say we we are um, urged to find one uh, compound for one protein or one enzyme. Uh, to target so we are used to like one medicine doing one job mm-hmm. and we kind of forget the whole uh, the whole concept of synergism in either medicine or nutrition or anything then that's why nutrition uh, research is is a kind of a weird field for scientists because I mean, you, you can take turmeric, you can take curcumin, where we talk only about curcumin, but in the end we see that it's not only curcumin, it's the whole of turmeric so, and that kind of baffles scientists. So I think that's why maybe uh, in medicine and in other uh, science-based um, uh, studies, we kind of get a little bit um, intimidated by mm-hmm. things that don't work just one for one, but it's kind of a, lots of things for one. I think you're totally right. And I think there there is being a change now going towards the more holistic approach because yes, it's diet, but diet is one part of it. And then you also have the lifestyle mm-hmm. and the, what kind of lifestyle the person uh, lives. And then you also have his sleep pattern. You also have his mental health. So the person is an entity which has so many parts that if you align all of them, they work synergistically in the condition, yes. in a chronic condition, in the setting of cancer, etc. So this is exciting. Um, today I wanted to talk about, well, nutrition, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I wanted to start with, um, there's a lot of people who are struggling with, uh, to lose weight mm-hmm. and they, they go down the path of nutrition, doing certain diets, etc. Is there an optimized diet for, um, for fat loss? And are there some diets which we should be careful? Uh, there are, um, I wouldn't say that there is a diet that is uh, like the optimal diet because most of the times we see people who are struggling with weight loss having underlying conditions like menopause, let's say, Mm -hmm. like thyroid issues, even subclinical hypothyroidism is one of the things that kind of affects the whole uh, weight loss uh, aspect. And, but in my, in my opinion, one of the kind of uh, safest in as of nutritional adequacy diets is the, like the glycemic, uh, the low glycemic load diet or like a whole plant-based diet. Um, I would advise people to just um, kind of uh, 
not giving the edge of catacomb food or calorie counting. It's been shown in uh, in studies that uh, low carb diets or you know calorie counting doesn't really help because calories are not all the same. Uh, there's a big difference uh, in how the calories are processed depending on the macronutrients and on the like fiber, micronutrients, like vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients. So everything kinds of plays a role on how glucose and fat is processed in, uh, in our body. So just counting the calories is kind of not cutting it in the end. You can, uh, you can see that um, you can have fries on one hand and flax it on the other. You can have the same amount of calories in both hands, but you'll get fat from fries and not from flaxseed even if you eat the same amount of calories because the 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 calories from flax will be processed differently it doesn't have any glucosine which means no fat will be generated from excess glucose intake and at the same time it contains multiple uh, phytonutrients omega 3s which makes it kind of a totally totally different food than uh, fries are there any specific uh, so what I get from this is that not all, not all calories are the same. So mm-hmm. not all calories are the same. What specific calories should people who are trying to lose fat uh, be aiming to get? Um, whole foods, basically. So uh, the less processed the food is, the better it is. That's kind of a general rule. So when you see some kind like a food that in your mind it needed, you know, some process, some kind of, um, uh, you had to change things. You had to, I don't know, grind the flour and, and you have whole wheat flour and then you have just like plain white flour. So you can see that a whole grain flour is less processed than a white, white flour. So the less processed the food, the better in, uh, the better nutritionally wise and then also glycemic wise, like fat wise, let's say. Okay. And are there any specific foods people should avoid? Yes, I would say that people who want to lose weight, they should definitely avoid uh, like white rice, sugar, um, fried food. Basically, basically, some people have this like white rule stuff. So white flour, white, uh, white mm-hmm. rice and sugar are like main culprits which, because they are uh, rich in simple carbohydrates which means that they are metabolized easily in glucose. And then when you have excess glucose, it goes to become fat. Um, these are like kind of the rules. And you have more specific things, like uh, which we know that we, we should eat them um, uh, kind of less in, in, in a smaller quantity because they contain plenty of glucose, which is metabolized like dates or bananas. But I think like... The main thing, we shouldn't be concerned with bananas or dates when we want to lose weight. We should be concerned with flour, especially white flour, like processed, the processed one, white rice and, uh, and sugar. When you say avoid, uh, what do you mean? Like a big X on it, like I'm never going to eat it or smaller quantities of it? Because I think it plays difference yeah. in the... For a person that wants to lose weight, they should cut it off. Because it's a food that it's kind of, it offers so much glucose in that it kind of hinders the whole process of uh, fat burning and uh, losing weight. Mm -hmm. But for a person that is healthy or just has like a little bit of extra weight, then you can just opt for a whole grain, whole grain rice, you know, whole grain, um, 
whole grain bread. You can opt for uh, maybe a sweet that has less sugar. And also if it's non-processed sugar, it will be healthier. But in terms of glucose, it's kind of whole, whole grains are better. They're more, uh, they have less, gl- less glucose is absorbed, mm-hmm. less glucose is digested uh, in comparison with the white ones. Sounds good. And I've also, I've also heard about intermittent fasting mm-hmm. and I, I have actually tried it for, uh, I don't eat in the morning and then I eat yeah. in the midday and in the evening. Uh, one of the things that has helped me a lot is with the clarity of mind, but we'll, I think we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah. Um, what about intermittent fasting for losing weight? I've heard people, I've heard good stories about it. Yeah, there are there is research like um, suggesting that it can help. Like um, there is one uh, paper from Malinowski, it was around 2019, which kind of uh, reviews the whole uh, research on intermittent fasting and weight loss and has shown very good effects. It also, help, it also helps with cognition, um, athletes' performances, and actually it's kind of a... Um, Recipe for longevity because of the calorie restriction aspect. Um, I like intermittent fasting. I find it really interesting in the sense of it doesn't uh, deprive you of nutritionally healthy foods. It kind of walks in the path of circadian rhythms and the hormones that are excreted d- uh, during that uh, period. So we have like hormones that are excreted during the night, like melatonin, and then we have cortisol, which is excreted in the morning. So we kind of move um, along those lines, and it has shown that it, it's kind of nature's way, let's say, how it's meant to be. Uh, so that some people are really strict in, like, it's there are different kinds of intermittent fasting. The most common and, let's say, the best one is 16-8, which means for 16 hours you fast and for 8 hours you eat. And those eight hours are meant, ideally, of course, to be between 10 o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the evening. So it's kind of the times where the sun comes uh, up enough to have plenty of light and then around six when the sun sets. This, of course, changes also with uh, the seasons and also sometimes with the schedules of people because if uh, someone is working till six o'clock, it's going to be a bit trickier. But I think even if you kind of manipulate your hours around you can uh, you can do a good job in terms of fasting and you can get the benefits your your intake of food is the same like it doesn't change your calorie intake of food it changes because you cut off meals basically you cut off meals but you cut them in the right time let's say so okay. because you you skip breakfast and then you kind of skip some snack times there is some calorie restriction there. So the calorie intake in your day is different than, it, than if you didn't do intermittent fasting. So would you su- suggest this for people who are trying to put on muscle weight? Yeah. But I would suggest it also um, to take in mind the part of um, uh, what you eat on those eight hours. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to put muscle weight, you need to get your macronutrients and your phytonutrients in a right dosage, let's say, uh, to not end up in eating like only a specific food and then kind of messing up your whole nutritional profile. Okay. I want to go back to the, I want to dig, dig a bit deeper in the intermittent mm-hmm. fasting. You said uh, about the hormones and uh, mm-hmm. you talked about uh, how it sticks to the circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. How does it work? Uh, Basically, the circadian rhythm is how our um, epiphysis, which is a part of it in the brain, it's a small mm-hmm. part of the brain, how it reacts to light. 
and it's related to our sleep pattern. So when we stay awake at, till, I don't know, 12, 1 o'clock in the night, we kind of disturb that circadian rhythm. Normally, when the sun sets and the darkness comes in, cortisol drops and melatonin rises. Melatonin is the hormone for sleep, basically. You start feeling sleepy when your melatonin rises. Bright lights, white lights, uh, you know, um, blue light from, uh, from screens, they all inhibit the production of melatonin. So it's one of the things that sometimes we discuss with uh, patients. It's, it's what mm. is, it is what is called the sleep hygiene, basically. Um, so this plays a role in how everything is processed. Uh, digest, digestion is also um, is also affected by this change in cortisol and melatonin. So that's why at night you kind of digest less. Let's say your digestion doesn't work as well, and that's why we kind of prefer at the night. At, that's why intermittent fasting finishes at six when you are kind of in a better digestion function. Let's say. Uh, in comparison with 10 o'clock. I think many people can relate when you have like late night uh, eating for whatever reason that it takes longer for you to feel empty again in your stomach, which doesn't apply with at lunch, like the same amount of food. It kind of goes like this. Okay, and then what about keto? So keto. A ketogenic diet is a diet that's been around for a while with different names. Basically, before it was Atkins diet. And the funny thing about Atkins diet was that Dr. Atkins, the creator of it, said that it's a nutritionally inadequate diet and you needed to pop in some multivitamins alongside the diet. So basically, ketogenic diet has different variations, but the main thing about ketogenic is that you eat around 70% of fat. Uh, 20 to 25% of protein and 5% carbs. The problem with ketogenic diet is basically it's nutritional adequacy. It's an inadequate most of the time. It's unsustainable because you cannot keep eating like that. And most of the time, the fat you are eating, it's unhealthy fat. It's not healthy. It's, you eat your fat from meat, saturated fat, trans fat. So it's, um, it's fats that have been proven to affect cardiac health, to affect uh, gut health the microbiome in our gut. So even for epilepsy or for cancer, which it was suggested that it would help, there are there is there are evidence that suggests that it's not helping as much. Like with epilepsy, there is a Cochrane uh, review, which like Cochrane is like the highest level of evidence, which kind of debunks the whole thing that is the best thing for epilepsy. It seems to help, but it's not in the... Um, it's not in the in the size that we kind of make it into. Uh, for cancer, it has shown no positive effects. Actually, it has shown, at least for breast cancer, that it kind the ketones act uh, like more carcinogenically than protectively because ketones are produced in the uh, in the mitochondria. Uh, it's they are utilized in the mitochondria in the part of the like the oxidation. And that creates more uh, reactive oxygen species when you just take ketones in. So it kind of defeats the whole purpose of an anti-cancer treatment. So there was a, um, uh, there was a paper uh, from, I think it was um, Bonuccelli, which kind of showed what ketones were doing. And there were other, um, there were some other, after, some other papers afterwards, uh, which kind of, 
debunk the whole thing. So for me, keto is like either for weight loss, it's not good because it's unsustainable. So you'll put it afterwards. You'll put your weight back afterwards because you won't be able to keep up with ketogenic. For diseases, I believe that the whole plant-based diet or maybe a traditional Mediterranean diet is much better in terms of nutritional adequacy because if you lack the micronutrient in the end, if you end up lacking things, you'll end up causing more damage. Even if you take supplements and even if you do it in, uh, even if you do it in, if you, if you didn't do it for a long period of time, I don't know how much, for example, one or two weeks, you do mm -hmm. a keto diet, would that be helpful? I don't think so. Most of the studies that kind of gave some benefit to keto diet were like four weeks. So at least you should do it for a month. You will do it for a month. Mm -hmm. But I mean, no one loses that much the weight that they desire in a month. So you need to keep it more. But in the okay. end, if you don't, if you don't educate yourself on what to eat afterwards, you end up going back to old habits. If you go back to old habits, then you'll put the weight back on. Again, so it's so it kind of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas intermittent fasting is is better for it's that. It's kind of more sustainable intermittent fasting because it's kind of it can become a habit. You yeah. you don't necessarily uh, restrict the way you eat, like what you eat, but you restrict the timing. You kind of um, optimize it according to different, let's say, rules like circadian rhythm and also if you kind of work around your diet like small changes in those eight hours and you input some healthy foods in or some foods that are uh, nutritionally better than others like you kind of ditch let's say fried food i don't know you can see the benefit afterwards and even if you go back to eating uh, fried food again the cal calorie wise you will be lower okay so it makes sense it makes sense mm -hmm. my personal uh my personal experience with intermittent fasting is that I stopped eating it in the morning because just time-wise, I'd wake up, I'd want to get quickly to uni, <laughs> get on the train. So it, it kind of, it helped me in that sense. So my morning routine got shorter. So, so that was better for me. And plus I found that I was more alert at uni. I don't know why. I was just more alert. I was more focused. I could, my brain worked better. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Th this is not scientific or evidence-based. This is just my own experience from it. Um, yeah. Actually, there is a paper from Gooden, I think it's a Gooden from 2021. So it's kind of a very recent paper, which shows that it enhances cognitive function. Okay, that's So it kind of defeats the whole, you need to eat a chocolate to be energetic and be able to think. Kind yeah. of beats that, um, which is kind of more of a myth, but we'll get to it afterwards, maybe. Um, but yeah, so it has shown to actually enhance cognitive function. That's interesting. So yeah. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Um, I'm glad it's backed up by evidence. <laughs> so muscle gain, uh, optimized nutrition. So, um, muscle gain is not so much in my niche because I work mostly with chronic diseases, but, uh, in my opinion, and at least in the opinion of other uh, professionals, uh, in, uh, in the nutrition, let's say, um, field like, uh, Dr. Colin Campbell, which is like a very renowned biologist in the U S uh, there is like there is one aspect which refers to the quality of the protein you are taking if you are taking protein supplements and stuff like that, uh, which is like the plant-based protein is much much better than animal protein in sense of in the sense of promoting inflammation in the body. So they they found that um, milk protein casein, which is a very common <laughs> protein that is being taken by uh, gym goers uh, around the time, 
kind of promotes inflammation, whereas um, a plant protein wasn't. So there is that there, which we should be taking in mind. There's also the myth that we all need, you know, protein and we need uh, protein supplements and blah, 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 which is a big myth. It's another myth. Uh, Tim Spector in his book, How um, Spoon Fed, um, explained with references, with uh, evidence that people are eating much more protein than they are thinking that they are eating. So we are eating like the top of 1.2 grams per kilo that is uh, suggested by the British Nutrition Foundation. Most of us are eating that, like 1.2, which is the maximum. There is the 1.5 that is mostly applied to like really high endurance sports or bodybuilders. But still, again, no, most of the people are not doing high endurance sports or they are not bodybuilders. So it's kind of it's a big myth that goes around that you need your protein, you need your protein or BCAAs or creatine or I don't know what else. But in my opinion, diet can offer you all the protein you need without the, the negative effects. The negative effects being that... Um, Excessive protein can affect your kidneys, can affect your gut health, your microbiome. Most of the time, the protein supplements that we are taking contain other excipients, other ingredients that are not really healthy, like artificial sweeteners, like maltodextrin, which affects uh, affect our microbiome, microbiome in a very negative way. So I would be saying that better stay off them and focus on diet. There are plenty of things yeah, that you can eat either either animal-based or plant-based, and you can take the whole amino acid profile for either of them, from either of them. That's why we have vegan athletes and vegan bodybuilders. Yeah. What about, I want to ask some food. So let's say a bowl of lentils. Mm -hmm. How much protein would that have in comparison to a steak? I'm not sure at the moment how much it has, but if I remember correctly, Dr. Michael Greger, we, who ha, um, has written like me, uh, some books and he has the webpage nutritionfacts.org, yeah. which is a, it's a kind of a database full of evidence about different uh, topics. He has shown that you can eat like, I don't know, like a serving of uh, beans and get the same protein that you can eat, you can take from a steak. So you can take the same. Maybe it's not, meta, it's not digested at the same way or at the same pace. But if you if you uh, include in your diet a variety of plant-based foods, you can get the protein you need. You can get the amino, the essential amino acids, the amino acids that we cannot uh, synthesize in our body. You can get them with uh, not much difficulty. What about this? Is again getting into the car, into the keto diet. Um, what about the carnivore diet, where it's so for instance, I guess it's only eating meat. Basically, it's uh, eating animal-based food like eggs, meat, chicken, like stuff like that. Mo- fish. I, fish yeah. I've heard I've heard from a few people on the internet uh, mm-hmm. that it it helps with autoimmune mm-hmm. uh, s- uh, syndromes. I know from a friend of mine who tried it. He said it kind of helped him, um, but yeah, he did feel the effect of the the brain fog effect. That his mind was more clear. He was a bit more. Mm-hmm. What about that? I would say, okay, first of all, like a carnivore diet, it would have, uh, it it would be nutritionally inadequate, first of all. Then we have the pro-inflammatory effects that we know that meat has. It's kind of proven, kind of, it's uh, something that it's, there's heavy evidence uh, that uh, kind of supports the kind of pro-inflammatory properties of 
of uh, animal-based food, so there's that then. And then there's the whole, uh, there, there is the whole uh, gut health aspect, you know, low fiber, uh, low phytonutrients that we get. With autoimmune diseases, I would say that basically one of the reasons that they may be seeing um, some improvement is that if they have any kind of food sensitivity in either lectins, which lectins are an ingredient in, um, in legumes, Mm-hmm. Uh, which we can get rid of them very, very easily. It's not a problem, but there is some diets that claim that we need to get rid of lectins because they are kind of an anti-nutrient. It's a way of the plant to protect itself from being eaten. Um, so we have lectins, then we have gluten. People with autoimmune diseases, especially uh, thyroid uh, autoimmune diseases, have sensitivity in gluten. I have a patient with uh, gluten sensitivity who has thyroid issue so it's kind of it's it's already proven that there is an association between the two so then we have gluten with meat you don't get gluten and then you have um you have aspects of uh, maybe difficulty eating things because sometimes if we are very picky eaters and we just eat one plant-based food and nothing else or we eat fries which is a plant-based food but it's fries then it kind of it it's definitely not going to help. I haven't seen evidence um, promoting a carnivore diet for autoimmunity, to tell you the truth. Uh, And I would definitely not suggest it because I'm I'm kind of cautious in what it will cause later down the line. Because we know everything starts from the gut. Most of the diseases start from the gut. We know the microbiome is a very versatile uh, community that affects even our brain. So maybe like in the short term, you may find some benefit because you are cutting off lectins and gluten. But then when you will start to feel the effects of micronutrient depletion, phytonutrient depletion, I don't know what will happen then. It's very interesting though. Uh, because you're right, people with autoimmune uh, diseases yeah. are sensitive to both of the things that you mentioned. Um, yeah. I've never seen in a, a study claiming that, I don't know, meat prevents cancer. I've only seen studies saying say meat. <laughs> meat promotes it. So yeah. that would be one of the things that I would be mindful of when I'm trying a carnivore diet. Also, I would be mindful of, I've never seen a diet, I've never seen meat promoting heart health but I've seen meat worsening heart health. So there are many studies that kind of, it's like I will do something which may help my autoimmunity, but then I will do something that kind of beats the whole concept of prevention and kind of increases my risk for everything else. So I may feel a little bit better for, I don't know, two months and then I'll I'll end up with something new. It's kind of... Maybe better for people who want to try something for autoimmunity, for carnivore, and they want and they are thinking of carnivore diet. Better cut off gluten and see what happens, <laughs> or or uh, lectins in that sense. I think that's the whole point of the carnivore diet. But they are taking it in an extreme, uh, in an extreme sense. Yeah, it's interesting. though. it's very interesting. Uh, all of the stuff you're saying. You mentioned um, microbiome. Mm-hmm. What can we do? What is the microbiome, first of all? How does it affect us? And can we do anything to keep it healthy? So the microbiome is a community of bacteria, archaea, and fungi that lives in our intestines, basically. 
Um, the reason that we need it is because it kind of boosts our immune system. It keeps it trained, basically. Uh, it also helps with the digestion of fibers. It produces some uh, vitamins like vitamin K. Um, and also it kind of, uh, if we have a healthy microbiome, it kind of keeps the pathogenic bacteria out. So we have like good bacteria and bad bacteria, let's say, if we can say it in, in such a, simpli a simplistic way. And when we have a good balance of good bacteria, that also affects our skin, our nervous system, autoimmunity, our resistance to, uh, to, this, to you know, like uh, bacterial or virus, uh, viral diseases, you know, like the common flu and all that stuff. When this balance is disturbed, then we'll, we'll start getting symptoms. These symptoms may start from just digestive issues, like uh, bloating, you know, abdominal cramps and pains, uh, maybe some um, gastro... Uh, Gastrointestinal. Uh, oh, great. Uh, yeah. So we'll start getting that. And then it kind of, it may go to the skin, it may go to the brain, you know, brain fog, lack of energy, fatigue, you get all these things, sleep disorders, mental health issues, depression has been associated, schizophrenia has been associated with dysbiosis. And then there is like a, big variety of diseases that has been associated with, uh, with dysbiosis. Uh, what we can do basically is more or less, first of all, to feed our microbiome with the right stuff, which is uh, fiber. Uh, fiber can be in the form of leafy greens, leafy things. When you see leafy things in the environment, it's kind of, it is, um, I think that is... Um, uh, prebiotic, as we say, it, it kind of it's the food for our good bacteria. So we have this, and then we have other um, sources of uh, another type of fiber, which is called soluble fiber. Fiber like um, like uh, sweet potatoes, avocado, flaxseed, uh, and many others like pe pectin of apples. So all these have shown that they, in a weird way. And a very fascinating one, they help the good bacteria and not the yeah. bad ones. So by feeding the ones that we want to flourish, then everything kind of we only have the good ones and we have a better balance uh, in our bacteria. We have also seen uh, that um, we can help our bacteria by eating fermented foods like kefir, like sauerkraut, kimchi. These these all contain uh, probiotics. They contain good bacteria. Uh, so that's another way to kind of help uh, our uh, microbiome. Um, and and one other thing that is kind of fascinating and it's kind of it kind of connects to the carnivore diet. We've seen that what we eat affects the microbiome. So if we are more of meat eaters, our microbiome will tend to go in a more pro-inflammatory state. It will produce pro-inflammatory compounds in the gut, uh, and it will tend to uh, metabolize more bile acids, fat, soluble molecules uh, in comparison when in comparison to the microbiome that is developed when we eat plant-based foods. We when we eat plant-based foods, our microbiome tends to a profile that's more anti-inflammatory. We produce short-chain and medium-chain fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory. So it kind of gives a sense on why plant plant-based foods should be incorporated in our diet. 
I've got so many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> so number one is like, this is the mention. Uh, there's this book called, called Gut or in Greek, mm-hmm. uh, which is by uh, Julia Enders. We'll, we'll put it in the description as we'll put all the references that Agustinus has mentioned. Um, which basically talks all about what you said, uh, how the microbiome, how the gut, how it links with the brain and the amount of connections it has with the brain and the effect that it has and how it's been linked to depression, how it's been linked to uh, suicidal tendencies, which is something that I, I, I was like, okay, so the food you eat affects directly how you feel and, um, and yes. can even cause all this stuff, which is... Which is which answers one of the questions that I that I was about to ask you. Uh, why is it important to take care of our nutrition? Because your nutrition determines your mental health and your physical health. Am I am I yeah, right in saying exactly. that? Exactly, it affects both both of these aspects. And what, one of the things that it's kind of it's a very very simple example is that you know people when they feel sad or they feel upset they want to eat uh, sugar. Why is that? Because sugar affects a specific part of the brain that yeah. kind of excretes dopamine. So we can see even food affecting directly our brain, and then we can see food affecting indirectly our, our brain through the microbiome. Because 70% of, of our serotonin, which is the hormone of happiness, so many people uh, would uh, know that, and it's yeah. kind of everywhere, uh, it's produced in our gut and not in our brain. I didn't know that. Yes. 70% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's how, why some functional doctors call the gut our second brain. Yeah. Julia says this in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading it. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was prebiotics and probiotic supplements. So do they help mm-hmm. the microbiome? Have they been proven to help the micro? It's supplements, basically. There is plenty of research on both on probiotics, prebiotics, and the symbiotics, and, and, both yeah. of them. And what's the difference between them, yeah? Basically, probiotics are bacteria, are bacteria, bacterial, bacterial strains that we've seen that uh, are present in our microbiome and that they are like a good guys, let's say. We've seen what they can produce, you know, the compounds they produce and everything. Um, so we put them, we lab grow them, and we put them in capsules. Uh, so some of them are like Lactobacillus acidophilus, Plantarum, there are like there's a whole uh, variety of them and different strains. So not all Acidophilus are the same, not all um, Lactobacillus rhamnosus are the same. They are, there are different strains which are being researched like one strain for one disease. So I go back again to one and one. So we cannot forget again about the whole synergies and we are trying just to find that one strain that can do the one good that we are trying to find. Uh, So that's probiotics, basically. And then we have prebiotics, which are basically uh, uh, fiber, either soluble or insoluble. Prebiotic is the food for the, it's the food for the, those good bacteria. You can take it in many forms, in, in a powder or in capsules. Most of the time they put them together So kind of they put the food for the good bacteria and the good bacteria, because when you take a probiotic, basically what you want is for the bacteria to adhere to the gut wall and kind of grow. So we may drink, I don't know, something we see 30 billion uh, colonies per unit, but it doesn't mean that they all manage to stay there because there are all the bacteria in our gut are trying to survive. They kind of, they try to displace the other ones that are competing with them. So it's a community, basically. 
There is plenty of research on multiple things, on uh, either digestion, things like uh, Crohn's disease, IBS, um, ulcerative colitis, maldigestion, like you name it, there it is out there. And I've seen many papers coming on for prebiotics and symbiotics. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. For me, probiotics is a good tool, but it shouldn't be taken like for a long, long, long time because you can disturb your uh, microbiome um, balance. Prebiotics, you should take them by food. You should eat your legumes, you should eat your lentils, you should eat your flaxseed. You can, there are so many foods that are so, so rich in uh, prebiotics that is kind of... You can eat a whole food. There's no reason for you to take a supplement. Sometimes you should take a supplement when you have like a very, very serious condition. Uh, I mean, I gave supplements, uh, prebiotic supplements to patients when there was a very serious condition and when these people weren't able to kind of adhere to to their like um, food uh, goals. But it's not necessary. It's not like the necessary thing to just take a prebiotic supplement. Okay, I like I like this. I'm learning a lot. Uh, I want to drill down a bit on the supplements. I heard from someone, um, from a doctor, that when you take supplements, for example, I we're gonna go we're gonna dive to this a bit mm-hmm. a bit later, but I, I just remembered it. When you take vitamin D or you take C, curcumin, and all this different mm-hmm. stuff, you should take breaks. You should take, for example, you'll do it for one or two weeks and then take a break of. The, uh, from taking the supplements. I don't know if this, because it's what you mentioned now with the probiotics. If you take it on a, it will affect the uh, microbiome. I, they don't, they don't have to do something with the microbiome, but I heard that your body becomes dependent on them and then it doesn't know. Uh, I wouldn't say that because most of the times the supplements are not just one compound for one disease. It's a whole food in inside most of the time or in general, with uh, with supplements, I don't know, I've never had someone getting hooked on a supplement. We always take in mind what the, the disease is. There are people that say in three months you do a break. Uh, like in three months you do a month of a break, but it always depends on the disease. Like mm. if, if I have a patient with, I don't know, hepatitis, and there is like a flare of... Um, a virus flare at the moment. I'm I'm not gonna stop at three months to support the liver. Yeah, it's it kind of defeats the whole thing. But it's I will be. I, yeah, it's personalized. When a person is take, just taking a multivi- multivitamin or I don't know, it's something more simpler. Then yes, but I wouldn't say that you'll get dependent. There are some things that you can get dependent on. Don't get me wrong, like Senna leaves, like St. John's Ward. You have to be careful. That's why I always suggest to people when they take supplements to advise, to get the advice of uh, someone who knows their stuff, who has studied it, who knows. Because sometimes we kind of, people tend to self-medicate and that may lead to some kind of dependence, especially when they are taking something that affects their mental status or some, or Senna. I've never heard of anything else making them dependent on, yeah. so on, uh, on a supplement. I had a question. Let me try and remember it. It was, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was one of those moments that it disappears. Let's go to something else and I'll come back to it. We talked about the, the fact that some diets such as intermittent fasting mm-hmm. can help with the so-called brain fog. Mm-hmm. They help uh, with being more focused, uh, and therefore, I guess, for me, as I felt it, being more productive uh, and also, um, for example, with exams, 
Yeah, can yeah. that help or with students is there a specific is there a certain diet or nutrition that students can take before exams or during exams uh exam periods when we're studying a lot which could help optimize that i would say to try and kind of minimize the the whole junk food thing because when we have exams we tend to eat more junk foods but that kind of uh, hinders our ability to think, our brain, uh, our cognition aspect. We've seen like, I don't know, there, is, there was a study with blueberries showing that they were, um, they were uh, very beneficial with cognition. So I would say that staying at a healthy diet, like a more, more like traditional Mediterranean diet, like you can eat your little bit of meat, but you should like keep your salads in or keep your fruit in and your like nuts and like we know omega threes help with cognition. So maybe if we if you incorporate some walnuts in or some flax, you may be able to help. Blueberries are another thing that I would say it's good to incorporate it and try to stay away as much as you can from junk food because it kind of def- it kind of does the exact opposite. Basically. What about supplements that enhance cognition, such as you mentioned omega-3? What about taking... Um, in general, research on supplements for cognition is kind of so-so, uh, let's say. So there isn't anything that is like really strong for cognition. Yeah. Uh, there, is, there is some evidence on Jingo Biloba, there is some evidence on omega-3, but I wouldn't tell someone, oh, you know, eat, uh, drink, Omega-3 supplements or Jingo and your mind will be, I don't know, like Einstein's. <laughs> I would say that just if you eat healthy while you are on exams, you'll feel better. You yeah. won't feel bloated or, you know, can't go to the toilet and you'll have all these different health problems. And at the same time, you'll feel better in terms of like brain fog, uh, cognition um, uh, functions. One other thing that I've seen that it kind of helps is uh, dark chocolate. So dark, dark chocolate. chocolate is one of the things that I, I would say for someone who also wants a kind of sweet note, dark chocolate around 85% though, not like a milk chocolate 50%. Uh, it has shown <laughs> to kind of enhance cognition, to kind of help uh, in, this, uh, in this time. So it's one thing that people can uh, try. I like that. Uh, so it's important, you know, we mentioned avoid this and maybe avoid that and this mm-hmm. is not good for you but we also have to put replacements in for people because yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you have a habit you can't just cut a habit you replace the habit with a new habit yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and I think that's part of what you have to do when patients come to you and you have to kind exactly. of exactly and that's where our job lies because everyone can go in the, into the internet and I don't know study and read about good foods and bad foods and fiber and I don't know everything but in the end, you need some guidance because sometimes you need like a personalization. Because let's face it, some people don't like, I don't know, lentils. <laughs> but uh, if I just say here, you should eat lentils and they don't like it, they will not eat it. So sometimes you need to find that alternative food or ha- how to incorporate it, where to incorporate it, when to incorporate it. So there are all these aspects that kind of need to be addressed sometimes, especially when someone is... Uh, is suffering from a specific disease. You mentioned, I've heard you mention motivational interviewing, mm. which is the technique which you use yeah. uh, with the patient. What is that? Motivational interviewing is kind of a technique which um, utilizes a cooperative um, a practitioner 
patient relationship. So it kind of gives the will to the to the client and we move from there to establish our goals. Uh, it kind of utilizes change talk, uh, affirmations, kind of deals with ambivalence in a more client-friendly way. It avoids the fear model, you know, if you don't do this, you'll uh, have this, I don't know, disease. Um, so what we do in, what I do in practice at least is that um, I always talk with my clients. I, we always try to put our goals together. So they kind of agree, they kind of put them themselves in the end with a bit of nudge from me. Uh, and we start from there and then we start uh, putting more and more in. Because if if we go to a client, I just give them a paper, a list of things that they need to do. Most of the time they will be overwhelmed and they won't. And they won't do that. So you need to kind of make them choose the goals they are putting so they actually do them. And then also they won't come back because they'll feel ashamed that they didn't do it. <laughs> oh, oh, and also they may feel, eh, well, I didn't do anything. So what's the point of me going back? Yeah. Yeah. And I think in our time now with people being so, so stressed and we are all living in a very like a stressful pace in society, um, practitioners need to be very mindful of who they have in front of them. Because sometimes when you have a very stressed person and you give them even three, three goals, not more, three they will, uh, they will be like, oh my God, there are too many. I can't, uh, <laughs> we cannot take them. Yeah. Uh, which is very important to take in mind. Sometimes we, you, you may start with just one. It's enough. You start with one and then you put another one, then another one. And then the person will end up, I don't know, maybe in six months or one year time. So we're back online. Um, had a small break. Moving on. On the things that you mentioned uh, with setting goals and letting the patient set the goals. And then when the patients mm -hmm. can't um, afford three or four goals, you go to one goal. So mm -hmm. you, you said the smaller the goal, the more achievable it is. There's a clinical psychologist called Jordan Peterson who talks about this. And he says that, for example, when you want to create a new habit, you want to start going to the gym uh, and you can't get it in your program. He says, start small, start very small. Like just get in your car, go sit outside the gym for like five minutes and then come back and then keep on doing that every day. And then the other day, maybe you, you want to go inside and take a look, see, see what's going on and then do a session for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but do something, do something and put it in your program. And then that's also going to give positive feedback loop uh that's going to come as a positive feedback loop and you're going to feel good about yourself and you're going to be like okay i can do this i can do the small step and then moving on and i guess this is what you're saying with a small goal i'll change this little thing in my diet and then we move to something else and something else yeah exactly exactly so let's go let's address let's do a rapid fire of addressing a few things that we uh, that we discussed one is uh meat substitutes what's your opinion on that I mean, um, from one hand, meat substitutes are uh, an ultra-processed food. So from one hand, they are not like healthy. I wouldn't yeah. say that I would suggest to people to eat meat substitutes or any kind of either meat or meat substitute for me. But with meat sub substitutes, we have seen uh, in, uh, in research that um, they offer some kind of benefit in relation to other um, processed uh, meat-based foods uh, that they kind of, they provide some um, benefit in obesity, some um, benefit in weight loss. Um, so they, are, they seem to be a little bit better uh, than uh, normal meat. Um, I wouldn't put them as a part of a diet to anyone 
But I mean, if someone wants to eat some meat substitute, they can eat it. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't suggest to have them as a main staple of your diet. Basically. What about another alternative, which is uh, artificial sweeteners? What's your opinion on that? Well, with artificial sweeteners, there is plenty of research down now. Um, it's something that uh, has kind of um, kind of disturbed, let's say, the waters in the science community in the um, most recent times, because they've they've seen that even though in calorie wise they are zero, so they don't offer any calories, they in a way, they manage to affect the insulin resistance uh, of, a, of a person. So they kind of, uh, again, affect obesity, affect weight, weight gain negatively, uh, which in the, at the beginning, when you hear like, I don't know, Coca-Cola zero, you say, ah, oh, it's zero, so it does, it's not <laughs> going to make me fat, or it's going to make me leaner. But in the end, it seems that it's doing the, the opposite. exact opposite thing because it affects the microbiome, basically. So uh, we've seen that artificial sweeteners like uh, uh, um, acesulfame K, aspartam, sucralose, saccharin, uh, they all managed to shift the microbiome balance towards a dysbiotic state. And the microbiome also affects insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So I can understand from that uh, perspective how they can affect weight gain. So for me, artificial sweeteners are a big no except for some specific ones, mostly alcoholic-based sweeteners like xylitol, erythritol, sorbitol, maltitol. All those are kind of okay. You can eat them. I suggest them to my patients when we are trying to find an alternative to sugar. And also we have um, stevia, uh, which... There is some research coming out. It's a bit controversial, but I think in comparison to everything else, it's one of the best choices in terms of sweetening things. And also when you're on a diet, because I mean, we have honey, which is very good, but it's also very rich in glucose. So in terms of, uh, in terms of glucose intake, we have to be a bit mindful of that. Oh, yeah. You talk about insulin resistance and how that negatively affects weight gain. Could you explain like... Uh, <laughs> what you create, yeah, why does it affect? Um, insu basically, insulin resistance means that uh, our cells, when they see insulin, basically, they say, ah, oh, there's insulin, so now we can take some glucose in. We need to take glucose that is in the bloodstream in. Uh, when we have insulin resistance, basically, the cells do not recognize insulin, so more insulin needs to be secreted to make the cells recognize it out there. So the more insulin you secrete... Uh, it kind of shows that there is an issue with your glucose handling and the insulin itself has other negative effects if it's in excess. So we don't like having too much insulin in terms of that. And also people with insulin resistance tend to put on weight far, uh, faster and not being, being able to lose it. That's one of the reasons, uh, that's one of the underlying diseases that may affect weight loss in people. Okay. And then we also discussed milk. Uh, this is a controversial thing that um, yeah, there's, there's new evidence for it. And 
Yeah, go for it. So, so with, what's wrong with milk? <laughs> so basically, milk has been kind of um, drilled in our brains. That is very, very cow milk, uh, almond milk. Inge- There's so many. We are milks talking nowadays. about animal-based milk. Okay. So the milks that were uh, like advertised a lot that they offer calcium and strong bones and strong yeah. teeth. <laughs> so the, there were even campaigns from governments. Uh, uh, trying to promote milk in uh, toddlers and in, in kids in primary schools. The funny thing about it is that um, there is a whole controversy around it because there are many uh, there are many industries that affect milk industry, especially in the US, that they are affecting the outcomes of studies or they are trying to uh, explain a result in a vague way so that you uh, can kind of throw you off. But there are studies that have shown that it kind of increases hip fractures, hip fracture rate. Uh, it, it's uh, in a randomized control trial by Matkovic. There is a meta-analysis of uh, cohort studies also showing um, that it, it increases hip fracture. So it's something that is consistent with research and it kind of defeats the whole purpose of strong bones. Which we were, which is mostly advertised for. So for me, I'm not. Uh, I don't think milk is necessary, but I understand that there is the taste aspect and stuff like that. But I would advise. I always advise my patients to kind of stick in a plant-based milk or at least reduce the milk products or the milk that they they drink and eat. Of course, we have milk products that offer some health benefits, and we cannot say that milk is totally evil. It, it definitely has some micronutrients and stuff like that, but I feel other things have better nutritional profiles, basically. What about people saying that the milk is hyperallergenic, which basically means, you know, people that have different allergies, mm-hmm. etc., hay fevers, uh, asthmatics, people, it's not, they, they should avoid milk. Um, I say there is some basis to that in the sense, in, in like there are two aspects. Animal milk. Yes. That, yeah. yes. Uh, there is first the aspect of, uh, especially the Mediterranean people, we cannot process a specific protein in, the, in cow's milk. Uh, I think it's called A3. Uh, goat's milk doesn't have that A3 protein, so it has A2, which okay. is processed better. So um, when you take a protein that is not processed uh, correctly in yourself, it may trigger uh, um, an immune response and it may trigger an inflammatory response. So we have low-grade inflammation uh, in the gut. So then we take that low-grade inflammation can be a result also from uh, histamine release. Histamine is the molecule that is present when we have an allergic reaction. Uh, so the, we have that and then we have lactose with some people being lactose intolerant. Uh, which means they cannot process lactose correctly. They, they lack the enzyme lactase, which breaks down lactose. And also in the Mediterranean area, in the Asians, I think they have some more um, tendency towards lacking that enzyme because basically we need that enzyme when we are uh, breastfed to process the milk of our mothers. But because af- after afterwards, when we get older, um, because we are not meant to be breastfeeding anymore. Uh, this Our body shifts its attention to different foods, to different en- production of enzymes. So it kind of leaves lactase out of the picture. 
So that's why we have many people having lactose intolerance. Okay. And I think you brought up a very interesting point. The fact that different people from different countries that have different genetic uh, have different genetics and because of the different genetics, they have different enzymes, they have different, mm -hmm. and they have uh, different optimal diets. For example, I've heard that the, uh, the Mediterranean diet that you mentioned, it benefits Mediterranean people more so than it actually benefits pe people that are not from, uh, that are not Mediterranean. I don't know. I don't know if that's correct or I think this comes on the personalization, uh, I would. Um, I'm, I, I don't know about it. Okay. Uh, I can kind of think why, because also a person from Norway, yeah. uh, if they try to follow Mediterranean diet, basically they will turn lower quality Mediterranean products. So mm. it kind of I, we cannot like standardize Mediterranean diet, but in the end it would be really difficult, and you'll also be getting lower quality products if you are in Norway or you know the north. Yeah, it sounds. So it kind of, that, that's one factor that plays it all some things i think i feel that some things are the same for everyone like plant-based foods the the fact that they are all beneficial that they are beneficial for for people uh, of course there are some uh, some exclusions like in kidney cases and stuff like that um but generally they are healthier for people than I don't know, like, than processed food. So that's kind of a rule. Then you, exactly you personalize it, depending where you are, depending what you have available, what you can get from the market, everything plays a role. So you kind of shift your attention to the things that are available to you, and yeah, there's no need for you to go bankrupt trying to buy things that are not available in your country. What about any specific foods that are you know, the so-called superfoods mm -hmm. that are good for you and that we should maybe increase or start? Uh, there are foods that have plenty of research done on them. They kind of, I, I call them really healthy foods, like superfoods kind of sometimes it makes people tend to overeat them and feel <laughs> that they are like a, a miraculous uh, a medicine for their aliments. Yeah. But there are foods like blueberries, like flaxseed, broccoli, um, chia seeds that have a very rich nutritional profile and they also contain really specific phytonutrients that are uh, very beneficial for uh, for our immune system or for our cognition so yeah I would for me these foods are very good if someone can put them in their diet and uh, they can help optimize your diet basically I want to move to the last section that uh, I want to talk about is supplements. Mm -hmm. um, are there any evidence-based supplements? Um, what are they and who should take them and under what supervision, yeah. under what guidance? Um, first of all, I would say that anyone who tries to get a supplement, they should be consulting uh, either their doctor or a complementary doctor and functional doctor, someone with knowledge into nutrition. And at least in my opinion, I feel that nutritional experts are more experts in supplements because they train in them, whereas doctors train more in medicine. So sometimes we have this kind of um, coexistence between the two, and it's important for both professionals to take in mind what others, either in supplement form or medic medicine, the, our patient is taking because we have interactions. 
and it's something really common actually to have interactions of medicine with supplements without the patient knowing and sometimes without either the either the, the nutrition expert or the doctor knowing which is a big issue uh, at this time um, there are there is a various level of evidence in multiple herbs and vitamins i'm gonna talk just for a, about a few of them because there's a ton out there and we know that some things have less evidence some have more sometimes our clinical experience kind of helps and uh, guides us where to go but we all, all i at least i always take in mind the the evidence behind it what kind of evidence it is what kind of studies you know like there are some like levels of evidence uh, in science. So we have uh, like vitamin D, which is a very common one, uh, which seems to be like low vitamin D seems to be associated with various conditions. So sometimes supplementing with vitamin D can help. Again, I, I can't stress that enough. I'm, I do not think that one vitamin, one mineral, can rid you of all your elements. And that's one of the mistakes that happens in research. We give only vitamin D to reach a specific goal. And then when we don't reach it, we're like, oh, it doesn't work. But <laughs> what about if it works with something else? That's at least my, my own opinion. So we have, um, uh, we ha I have some evidence that I can share with the audience uh, afterwards. I mean, how it works. And I think it's, it's very easy for everyone to find uh, research on vitamin D. Um, vitamin D helps with the immune system, with immunoregulation. It helps with uh, mental health. It's associated with mental health and also with um, with bone structure and bone uh, health in general. Uh, then we have magnesium. Magnesium is also um, a mineral that has shown to affect multiple uh, pathways in our bodies. Um, there are many studies again on it from anxiety, from insulin resistance, uh, from uh, migraines that show that it works and it's helpful. Um, there, there is a review from Grober that kind of sums it up all because there are so much out there. Uh, we can we could never put it all in uh, <laughs> yeah in, a uh, in in any in any in any book. Um, then we have uh, we have curcumin, which is a um, it's a pigment, the yellow pigment of turmeric. Uh, it has shown to have very strong anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer properties. Again, there is plenty of evidence for uh, curcumin, and I've heard that some doctors are starting to utilize it alongside their own regimes, and that's kind of good news for us. Uh, we are happy when people kind of put both. Uh, both uh, the nutrition and the medical aspect together. Um, also, there is, we talked about the prebiotics and the probiotics. Uh, there's chromium, another mineral which has shown to be beneficial for diabetes. Uh, again, we can, uh, there are evidence on it. Uh, Maret uh, 2019 also has like um, a good review on uh, chromium supplementation. There are other herbs also, uh, if we go on herbal, like from curcumin, we can go to ginger, we can go to uh, stinging nettle, to artichoke, there is milk thistle, there is 
there are various levels of evidence on these aspects. And I think those are kind of really commonly used, but there are so many more. What about, I know taking supplements and you take a supplement, it's, it's mm-hmm. from a certain company. So you've got mm-hmm. different companies making them. And there's this saying that not all, not all supplements are created equal, mm-hmm. um, which basically means, yes, you get a supplement, but that doesn't mean that what you're getting is of good quality, is enough, is of the mm-hmm. quality that you need and is um, absorbable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what's your opinion on that? And what are some good companies that make in your experience? This is this is not, uh, we're not advertising, <laughs> yes. uh, but this is, yeah. So um, there was a study, Dr. Michael Greger talks about, uh, about this issue. Uh, there was kind of an exploratory study that assessed various supplements from companies in the US. And they subtly showed that many supplement companies would uh, give out pills that did not contain what they said they were Mm. because supplements are not regulated by a specific organization like the FDA is regulating drugs, you know, the EMA, EMA in uh, in the, in Europe, it regulates medicine. There isn't something like that for supplements. Most of the time we rely on the um, reputation of the company. Uh, So what happens basically is that all the nutritional therapies, naturopaths and everyone, we kind of learn from experience. We know which are the good companies, basically. So we tend to buy from them because we know what what they say uh, that their supplement contains. It actually does contain that. Uh, The form of the supplement, as you said, plays a difference in uh, in absorption, in bioavailability, the form. Like for magnesium, I don't know, there are... A lot of forms. Yeah. Not all forms are uh, are absorbable. Not all forms have the same bioavailability. And even different forms are good for different things. Magnesium citrate works for um, as a mild laxative, and magnesium tartrate works for heart health. So you have different things that uh, you have different forms which work for different things. Um, for us, good. We have like the good companies, at least that I use and uh, I learned from the UK. We are like um, Viridian, Biocare, Nutri Advanced. Um, there are some herb ones like Vogel and Herb Farm. So there, there are some. There are some that are not as good. What I would advise people is to not just trust the marketing of a company mm. and ask a nutrition expert, someone who worked with supplements on what to get. And always, always uh, trust your uh, your um, expert's uh, opinion on what to get. Because I understand when you go to pharmacy, you may be suggested something else, uh, some different brand if they don't have the brand you are looking for. But there is a reason why we suggest specific brands. Because we know it works or because we know that the formulation that they have it's one of the best. Yeah. So we, because we also want results for our patients, we want them to feel better. We don't want them to feel worse or not see any benefit and just lose their money. This is one of the things that is really important. Sounds good. I think <laughs> we've learned a lot. Um, uh, before we leave, I want to ask one more question that I think I should have asked at the beginning. When does someone go to a nutritional therapist? When someone suffers from a chronic disease or they just want to improve their diet to help with prevention on something. Maybe they are scared about something, you know, genetics in the family. 
uh, we get patients that are, I don't know, scared about them getting uh, Alzheimer's or cancer or something like that because someone in their family has it. They can come to us just for diet improvement. And then we have chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. We, um, we deal with almost all chronic diseases except like kidney diseases. Uh, like um, because with kidneys, you know, the, uh, it's a bit different the approach, and it's uh, at least they go. I would uh, suggest them to go to a dietitian because it's a very specific way they need to eat. But in general, we can help everyone. In Cyprus, in in uh, in other countries, there are specializations nutritional therapists, naturopaths, being like they specialize in a specific niche. Mm-hmm. In Cyprus, because we are a small island, we don't have that luxury. Uh, but that means that we kind of read everything, study everything, and sometimes spend more time in studying because we need to kind of know a lot, lots of things. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things that people need to have in mind is that uh, they can come to a nutritional therapist or you know, a naturopath uh, even if they don't feel they can do like extreme things, they can work with their nutritional therapies with small steps, build up their diet, build up. They may not see like the improvement they are looking for at the beginning, especially if they start small, but they will feel the improvement afterwards, uh, especially when the regime is individualized and especially when it's like accurate because sometimes I would I suggest different foods to different people uh, when I see that there is something really specific on their case. Sounds good. And do you do you work with doctors in conjunction? Uh, sometimes, specialists? yeah. I, I know that uh, nutrition, as you said, is is it's not taught in uh, hospitals uh, in uh, in schools. So not many doctors are acceptable of um of nutrition playing a role in their uh, in their patient's health yeah uh, the good thing is that this has started to kind of improve in the last few years so we have more doctors kind of paying some attention they pay some attention i'm not saying they know exactly what we can do and what our powers are as nutritional therapists <laughs> let's say yeah uh, and some others fear that we kind of we are trying to displace them which we do not. We need conventional medicine as much as we need nutrition. I believe a lot that we can work together uh, in a regime. Um, and sometimes I think it's it's one of the things that it's existed in Cyprus for a long, long time. You know, where you get people with high blood pressure or cholesterol. The first thing that the doctor says is you need to improve your diet and exercise. And that's where it ends. But they don't <laughs> say what to do. And yeah, that's right. where we come in also. Yeah. That's another thing. Because even the doctors sometimes know that just giving medication to someone is not the best option. Sometimes they need something else because they know that long-term medication may have a mm. other side effects. So yeah, I I had a variety of uh, of uh, patients with their doctors. I had uh, patients telling me, "Oh, please do not make me discuss this with my doctor because." They do not. They cannot understand this. And I had uh, clients being like, "Yes, yes, my doctor told me to come. And they, told, yeah. they told me to change my lifestyle, and I tried to find someone to help me." And yeah. I'm like, "Yeah, I feel like I can definitely collaborate better with with a doctor that kind of understands a little bit about." You're nutrition. right because 
a lot of the times doctors don't have the don't have the time don't have the the, the gift of time and as we said before may, maybe the in-depth knowledge that uh nutritional therapists have in diet in order to accommodate to those needs it's like fix your diet like you said and then okay that's yeah, it yeah. so what does the patient do give me an action goal but i think um hopefully this podcast can address that can increase the awareness of nutritional therapist mm-hmm. and the one big takeaway that i take from here is uh, the multidisciplinary work that can be done, the synergistic work that can be done between nutritional therapists, consultants, uh, psychologists, in order to help a patient holistically in all the aspects of his health. So all these can work, again, I'm going to use the word synergistically for the health of the patient. Exactly. And one other thing that is kind of it needs to be said sometimes is that uh, patients uh, need Sometimes I know that it's not the easiest thing, but sometimes we need to discuss uh, to discuss it with our doctor if we want to find to try something else, yeah. uh, if we want to go into nutrition or stuff like that, because sometimes patients are just scared mm. to talk with their doctors, and that shouldn't be the case. And if their doctor don't want to listen, then they can see what they can do. They can discuss it with a nutrition expert. They can see if they can kind of put the two together. But sometimes it's important to, you know, have that in mind. Discuss it with your doctor. Tell them why you feel you want to do that change and then decide. Because sometimes we kind of rush to decisions yeah. uh, that our doctor won't accept it. But then we have doctors who really accept it and really um, motivate patients to actually seek help other in, in different uh, in in a nutritional profession, not and then a good uh, collaboration takes place. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much for being here, and hopefully this uh, podcast has a net positive effect. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Plus, we'll include all. Uh, we'll include all references that Agustinus has mentioned. We'll include them in the description. We'll also put the books, etc., so you can go forward and, and do your own research.